In the past, if we went into a neighborhood, you'd have the butcher and the baker and the candlestick maker. And nowadays, even the candlestick maker would be selling some kind of food. Hello, I'm Boyan Fierst, and you are listening to a new episode of Rural Roots, a show that asks what is rural in the 21st century. This episode is one in a series of episodes focused on food. Rural and food go together like apple pie and vanilla ice cream, except when they don't. My guest in this episode is Dr. Katrin Ma, and she is going to tell us why that relationship between rural and food is much, much more complicated. But before we do that, we are going grocery shopping. store, uh, the first thing you notice when you walk into a grocery store is that it's instantly recognizable, at least kind of any modern supermarket. It's instantly recognizable because there's the aisles, uh, we're walking right into the produce section right now, uh, it sounds familiar, there's a little bit of music sometimes in the background uh, that you usually smell right away some of the roasting chickens uh, or the fresh bread being baked, depending on what time of day you come in here. Uh, and then, even though it's recognizable though, everything has probably changed since the last time you were there in the store. That's interesting. I never thought about that, but you're absolutely right. Probably nothing is in the same place. There's absolutely nothing in the exact same place that it was, even if you came in two or three days ago in a big grocery store. Why is that? It's because there's a lot of market research that actually goes into the layout and the display of foods in stores. And every kind of decision about where that food is, is geared towards shaping your decisions as a food consumer. Okay, let's go through the produce aisle. So what do we have here? So when we go into the produce aisle, so here we are in front of uh, the tomatoes. So you can see that, so it's August right now, so tomatoes are in season and on sale right now today. Uh, there's a special. Uh, it's looking really attractive and fresh in here today. The shelf is full. Uh, there's also consumer psychology that shows that if you have just one or a two of an item left on the shelf. It's true for supermarkets as well as farmers markets. People are not gonna buy that product because even if that last one lemon looks perfectly good, people are going to buy more and, and want to buy it if the shelf looks fully stocked, gorgeous and fresh. This is uh, August, kind of the peak of the season, uh, into probably October is the only time of year in Newfoundland and Labrador where you can find a larger proportion of local produce. Uh, we produce very little uh, of our own uh, food for consumption here on the island. Oddly enough, that's true for a lot of rural communities, that they produce very little of their own food. It's true for rural communities, but it's also true for urban communities. So, so where does the food come from? <laughs> so this is a globalized food system now, and it's actually more efficient for the food system to be uh, sending us food from far away than for local producers to bring the food into something like a large-scale supermarket and sell it to us through a distributor or through a supermarket. So is a small rural corner store 
actually in a better position to bring local produce to their consumers. So this is actually a great market niche that's probably underexploited by small stores, is that they have those direct connections to local producers already, so they should take advantage of that and supply local produce for local markets. Often when people think about unhealthy food options, they think of a typical convenience store because as soon as you walk into a convenience store, there's a huge coolers full of uh, uh, sugar-sweetened beverages, soda, uh, and juices, as well as a whole wall full of chips, a whole front counter full of candy bars. The research has actually shown that supermarkets actually carry a much wider variety of unhealthy products than convenience stores do comparatively. And that's partly because of the volume of product that's available inside a supermarket. So actually in a supermarket, there are probably more opportunities to eat unhealthily than if you walk necessarily into a convenience store. So it takes much greater awareness of you as a consumer in a supermarket to the choices that you are going to make. So there's awareness, but there's also the ways in which the supermarket is shaping our choices subtly. So there's an aspect of us being really attuned to it, but there's also an aspect of public policy and public health thinking about how they can promote places like supermarkets or convenience stores to display those products in a way that actually promotes the healthy choices of over and above in a really easy way that's visible and appealing for consumers. Here we are in the cereal aisle. So what's the first thing you notice, uh, Boyan, about being in the cereal aisle? I don't know how much time you spend in the cereal aisle. It, I have two kids, a lot. It's <laughs> very colorful. It's colorful, it's appealing. I can just count offhand. I mean, it'd take us a few minutes to actually count all the different varieties. So including all of the different sizes of products available, the different flavors of the same product available. Uh, we actually have, let's guesstimate, probably I would say 50 or 50 varieties of cereal that's right in front of us in a, in a medium-sized supermarket. And what you can see right away is this cereal aisle is set up in a way that uh, what's immediately appealing to us. Now, the two of us have different eye levels. So we often talk about eye level in terms of merchandising of food in stores. So what's at your eye level right now? Honey Nut Cheerios. Honey Nut Cheerios. And there's also this great cross promotion in front of us. We can see that it refers to the Rio uh, Olympic Games. So none of this is actually just a coincidence. We know that at eye level, the healthier, the healthier choice that's right actually a little bit below eye level in front of us when we look at the sugar content of these two cereals uh, is actually the plain Cheerios. But they're not at our eye level. What's at our eye level is the sugar sweetened cereal that's also cross-promoted with something appealing like uh, the Olympic branding. Let's go to milk. So I see here that actually uh, there's a sign on this, uh, on this milk section that says Atlantic Produced. So Newfoundland and Labrador does produce uh, its own dairy. And what we see is that the uh, shelf is really well stocked and full of milk. 
we work with rural communities in more remote areas. And what we've heard from uh, our research with retailers is that the distribution system makes it uh, imp nearly impossible for them to actually supply fresh milk uh, in their stores. So when we actually looked at the differential availability and the pricing uh, of milk, fresh milk in rural stores across the Avalon, we found that uh, there's, a first of all, a huge price differential between stores, probably about $2 difference between the lowest and the highest price for two liters of milk. And uh, many of the retailers in the smaller towns told us that they were getting their milk distribution not through the mainstream distributor, but through their own distribution methods. And I can only imagine the further away from major urban centers you go and into more remote areas, especially in Labrador, that would get more and more difficult. That's absolutely true. Uh, and that's why uh, when we're looking at health equity in terms of the difference between kind of what's available to the most advantaged community versus the least advantaged community, that's why we do turn, tend to have a, a lot of policy right now that's directed towards northern remote communities that are at the greatest disadvantage, where the need uh, happens to be greatest. But a lot of those public policies actually focus on the transportation aspect of that retail environment. So things like freight subsidies that actually subsidize the cost of transporting that food that very, very great distance uh, to the smaller community. But what it doesn't actually tackle is the fact that the store still has to be run as a store with all of these kind of merchandising aspects that could promote healthier or less healthy choices inside those stores in those small communities, just as they do here uh, in the city. So we need actually public policy that covers the spectrum of determinants or factors all across that retail experience from distribution to what's happening in the store level to what are the motivations for consumers to buy it. Uh, we need public policy for all of those pieces of, that contribute to people being able to make healthier choices in their diets. Okay, so shall we head out? I think so. Let's do the one last thing at the front of the store. Sure. We've got to do the checkout. Oh, absolutely. We're walking through the front of the store now, and these front sections of aisles are called end caps. These are really lucrative spaces in the store, and both the stores and also the manufacturers of food products know this. So this is actually really, really valuable real estate that's used by stores and manufacturers to sell a lot of products. And I, and I, I like this particular end cap because it actually promotes all 100% juice, which is on sale, and bottled water. So this is actually one of the healthiest end caps that I think uh, I have ever seen. <laughs> and what's cross-promoted uh, right next to it is actually glasses uh, and straws. So all, uh, all a pretty healthy choice on this particular end cap. So right before we leave the store, uh, we have to point out the checkout aisle because the checkout experience is also something that's really uh, unique in modern supermarket shopping. So when we actually get to the checkout, we spend a lot of time there. Depending on what time of day you're going to the grocery store, often you're spending time waiting in line. Uh, and there's a movement uh, of 
in many places to make healthy checkouts. So what's a healthy checkout? A healthy checkout is a place where if you're going to be standing there, you're not going to be bombarded with uh, junk food, candy, soda, etc. Uh, what you're going to see instead is healthy options available to you at the checkout or uh, non-food products that you might actually need. So you can sometimes see that a little bit. Sometimes there's batteries at the checkout. Uh, this particular checkout does happen to have a lot of unhealthy options. We see a whole uh, section of candy and uh, a lot of parents and parent groups are really getting behind the healthy checkout movement because they don't, also don't want the hassle. Um, and that kind of nag factor is something that the food industry knows can sell more products at the checkout aisle. So as consumers, we also need to fight back against it. Back in the studio, we talked about Catherine's interest in food because it goes well beyond the usual links between food and health. As you could hear from our grocery store tour, she's also interested in how, and more importantly, where we shop for food and what that means for the kinds of food items that we can buy. Food is something that instantly everybody knows about because we eat three or more times a day. Uh, everybody, uh, I'm especially interested in how we shop to eat. So everybody goes grocery shopping. And when I mean everybody, uh, we look at the statistics in Canada and about 70 cents of every food dollar is spent in a grocery store. So even though we talk about people eating out more than ever before, and people are eating out more than ever before, before, people still spend most of their money in grocery stores. That's more true for rural communities, it's more true for low-income communities, and it's more true for seniors. So all of those three groups that I mentioned actually spend most more of their household dollar uh, in stores than in restaurants than other Canadians. Different people shop for food in different ways. Uh, some people like to make a list. Some people are working from a specific budget uh, when we shop for food. Before we get to the store, the, the places that we have available to us to go shop for food uh, have totally changed from the 1950s to now. So if you're going around in your community, you can easily find an example of a neighborhood store that probably looks just the same as it did four or six decades ago. In communities all over Canada, we can find examples like this. But around those uh, stores in neighborhoods, we have this whole other set of places where we can buy food that have proliferated uh, around those neighborhood stores. So these are places like supermarkets, supermarkets, there's independent supermarkets, chain supermarkets, small, medium, large size supermarkets, we have gas stations, we have convenience stores that are chain convenience stores and are a predictable uh, place that we know what we're, we get when we go there. Uh, we have hardware stores that are selling food. There's a, if you go to the florist, there's probably a little candy display or a, a drinks display at the beginning. So 
you know, in the in the past, in in if we went into a neighborhood, you'd have the butcher and the baker and the candlestick maker, and nowadays even the candlestick maker would be selling some kind of food. Uh, we also have expanded in terms of scale, so it's not just a supermarket. We have places that are called hypermarkets uh, or mega stores, and these are places where we have uh, it's called a mixed retail merchandising. So this is a place like Walmart. So Walmart is actually one of the biggest growing uh, mixed retailers uh, in the world and also in Canada. And they're increasingly selling a larger variety of food items, food and beverage items in those stores. We also have places uh, that you need a membership to go to. So that's a familiar place like Costco, uh, where you buy a membership and then you have access uh, to what used to be a warehouse type experience, so a wholesaling experience, but now customers can buy a membership and walk into a place like Costco and also buy food. So this is the amazing thing about how our food system has changed, is that even though food is available everywhere, it's available everywhere except when it's not. So this is when we get to uh, small places uh, and rural communities. So in many rural communities in Newfoundland and Labrador, I would say the vast majority of rural communities uh, depend on a small store that's situated in their community or in a community nearby uh, to access food on a local basis. Unfortunately, many of our small rural communities struggle with access to food. Canada is not alone in that struggle. In the United Kingdom, researchers coined the term food desert to describe what's going on. Food deserts have made it into the news really recently. I think it's a concept that's really easy to understand. What's a desert? It's a vast, empty, barren space with not much in it. So food deserts was actually a term that was coined in the UK to refer to low-income communities. So there's uh, some kind of economic disadvantage happening in those communities, as well as poor access to a source of retail food. So that term has since spread around the world. Where the research has gone uh, since the term was originally coined is that we now know that the United States is actually probably the only country where there's really good evidence for the existence of food deserts at all. Not even in the UK where the term originally came up. In Canada, we actually don't have good evidence for the existence of food deserts. What we have instead is a circumstance where, yes, there is poorer access uh, to healthier foods in some communities, but that's because there is also a predominance of less healthy food options in those same communities. In fact, in Canada, most low-income communities, the research has shown that most low-income communities have equal, if not better, access to sources of healthy food. Now, a lot of this research has been done in urban centers. So when we think about the rural and remote context, yes, in the rural and remote context, we have a situation where we have probably a mixed desert and swamp uh, environment going on. A food swamp is uh, a place where 
we have an excess of unhealthy food options alongside poorer, uh, poor quality or a lower variety of healthy food options. There is another side to food shopping that we as shoppers don't often think about, the business side. And it's more complicated in a small rural community. So this is where I like to kind of put ourselves not in the shoes of the shopper anymore, but to think about the, the shoes of the retailer that's working in a rural community or business owner. So I'm a business owner. I'm working in a rural community. Um, so what are my what are the things that are going through my mind when I'm setting up my business? First of all, I might have been a member of that community for a long, long time. So I actually want to serve my community. I know exactly who likes squid in my community and who likes what size of milk in my community. So I have that really intimate local knowledge that I can rely on to set up my business. However, it's still a business. It's still a modern, globalized economy. And what I have to deal with when I'm ordering that milk or that squid from the distributor is to think about the cost to my business. I have to think about uh, where, where that product is gonna come from, uh, how I'm gonna reliably keep that product uh, over time. Uh, and the truth is in small communities with low population density, and that you know, the more remote we get from larger distribution hubs, uh, we have challenges in terms of the transportation infrastructure, getting that product uh, down to my store. Uh, I might have kind of a limited space or infrastructure. I might have inherited a building uh, from my family, so I have to make do with uh, that space that I have available to me. Uh, if I need to have a refrigerator in my store, to supply the milk, what happens when that refrigerator breaks down? I have to call in a service, uh, service guy. That service guy, because I live in a rural and remote community, uh, might not be able to come today. Or I might not even ha actually have a service plan. I might have to call up somebody I know personally uh, to come service that equipment. I have to think about how I put, let's say uh, somebody in my community has asked me for a new product. They've heard about how healthy yogurt is and I want to introduce yogurt into my rural uh, convenience store even though I've never sold uh, yogurt before but I've sold milk before so I understand that product and I understand how it needs to be sold. I personally buy yogurt uh, in the supermarket, so I kind of know the brands and the products I like. So I'm going to bring that yogurt into my community. Uh, so how do I begin to do that? I need to think about my refrigerator. I need to think about the costs that I'm going to sell it at. I need to think about how long that product is going to last. So how many people in my town might actually want to have yogurt? Uh, how can I cross promote it with other items? in order to sell it. Um, these are all considerations that if I'm running a business in a rural small community, probably I don't actually have time to think in an in-depth way uh, about this yogurt that I'm gonna supply for this one consumer. So this goes back to what I was saying at the beginning. If we flip to the retail perspective, 
when we're thinking about a rural community, everything in our economy and in the way that community uh, is today in 2016 uh, is geared up to make my practices as a retailer very conservative. Conservative about how I use the space, conservative in terms of not taking risks about new products, conservative meaning I have to use a limited kinds of equipment in my store. I probably won't incorporate a lot of new technology because that's new and it could be costly to me. And I also have to think about the human resources in my store. So if I've had a staff member working for me for 15 years for their whole life and they're a resident in that community, I'm going to do everything I can to make things stable to keep that person because it's not likely that a young person in my town is going to want to work in my store and then make that a lifelong commitment. If we want better food closer to home, we are going to have to do something about local stores. I asked Katrin what are some of the options at our disposal. The first thing that we can do is let rural retailers know that they're not alone. So the biggest, uh, one of the biggest barriers that I already talked about is that, that rural businesses operate on a very local basis. So by actually letting retailers know that it's not just their problem, but a common problem, even in stores within their region, that gives them an instant political power and a purchasing power with the distributor that they may not have tried to access before. They might not have accessed it because there's also competition. After all, in small communities close to each other, I might be going to Bob's store and I might be going to Jane's store in the next community for a different set of products. But there's a lot of uh, customer satisfaction and customer loyalty at play. So by finding ways through public policy or through research uh, or through engagement of retailers um, for retailers to know that they're not going in it alone then that's one really important first starting point for helping retailers to begin to think outside of their existing business models so we're seeing this happen worldwide this is part of a broader movement in the United States and in Europe and in developing countries to begin to think about how very small businesses can actually combine their collective political power and their purchasing power uh, to change the food system. So on the demand side, we also need consumers to know that if they support their local store, that's a contribution to not only their health, but the local economy and to the social life of their community. It's those three things for me. I think that when most people buy food, uh, they're not thinking about all of those things and, and they don't necessarily need to think about all of those things. I don't think about all of those things when I go to uh, the market or to Sobeys on Saturday mornings. But public policy 
can think about all of those things all together. So that if we have public policies that encourage customers to shop at their local store, public policy or public health programs that make it really attractive and rewarding for customers to support small businesses, then people will shop at their local stores. A model that Katrin and her colleagues from across the country are interested in exploring is called a healthy corner store model. A healthy corner store is a business model that came up in urban centers in the United States a lot. And it combines three kinds of things. It's about rethinking that business in terms of the business fundamentals, in terms of the merchandising of food within those stores, as well as building that demand at the consumer level. So as we were talking about just now, supply factors and demand factors, but then also rethinking how that business is operating in terms of a physical space, as well as their connection to the local food system. That's a healthy corner store. The healthy corner store model came up uh, in the United States and it was used by uh, a lot of communities and actually started to get some attention from the federal government. So the US federal government implemented a large funding program uh, called the US Healthy Food Financing uh, initiative uh, was a way for uh, the federal government to inject funds into local communities to work with local stores to transform them, to either convert them uh, or to kind of rebuild them whole scale into a healthy corner store model. In the last, I would say three to five years, the healthy corner store model has also begun to get uh, attention in Canada. My research team and collaborate our collaborators in uh, Toronto as well as in Waterloo, uh, the, a, a large group of collaborators are interested in how we can bring the healthy corner store model uh, to the Canadian context. In the United States, the healthy corner store model focuses a lot on bringing fresh fruits and vegetables into those uh, so-called food deserts. But in Canada, because we have a lot more food swamps, we need to think about uh, increasing the variety of healthy food options, as well as potentially, what are we going to do about all of the unhealthy food options uh, in Canadian communities as well. Some healthy corner store models connect to local producers in a really uh, direct way. So for example, a healthy corner store might look right into the community and see who are women in the community who are already baking great bread, who are already maybe selling it uh, to their neighbors or have an arrangement, an informal business arrangement uh, with consumers in that community. And then how can the store become a place and a space where that bread becomes available to the community on a larger basis? And so that's really actually connecting, uh, you know, one very small informal business venture with another small business venture inside that same community. That's one way of connecting healthy corner stores with their local community. Another way of thinking about that is uh, collective purchasing power, which is what we were talking about when we we're thinking about maybe multiple small communities uh, that are near each other within a region. 
So this happens a lot in Newfoundland and Labrador in rural and remote communities. Often a whole section or a region uh, of rural communities actually gets cut off from services. And this is not just uh, food distribution, we're talking about health services. Uh, people are expected to travel to a, a larger regional hub in order to access goods and services. Well, the Healthy Corner Store model suggests that maybe each one of those communities could thrive a little bit better if each of the small businesses in those communities could use their collective purchasing power to access the distribution, yet still have the businesses embedded in the local communities and not ask, actually expecting everyone in that community to travel to that hub. So the, it's a distributed, very local model at the same time as that it combines those businesses together in their collective power. Katrin says the healthy corner store model is in many ways an interesting option for communities because it can operate in a variety of ways. It can be a private enterprise, it can be a community-owned co-op, a social enterprise, or any combination imaginable. It's an ideal model to experiment with new ways of doing things in small communities. So when we talk about innovation, the next word that comes right next to it is often entrepreneurship. So people can be entrepreneurial in many ways, and and entrepreneurship means sometimes taking over a, long, a business that you've had in your family for a long time. Sometimes it means starting up a new business, finding a new niche in that community to fill a need that was always there, but you're going to fill it in a new way. So that's another uh, way that things are happening. Katrin Ma and her team are excited about their work because there are many solutions that we could implement to make food healthier and more accessible in rural and remote communities. It has lots of solutions and that ingenuity to enact those solutions already exists in communities. So what we're doing as researchers is we're connecting those great examples of local solutions. We're also working in communities to test those solutions and then develop the research evidence so that we have both the innovation and the evidence to support it. And then we take that information and put it together in a way that's compelling for politicians and policymakers so that the policy can then set the conditions for making life easier for the businesses, for the entrepreneurship, for the innovation, as well as for the shoppers who are making tough decisions with their budgets every day in those communities. So there you go. You just listened to another episode of Rural Roots. My name is Poen Fierst, and my guest today was Dr. Katrin Ma, a Memorial University of Newfoundland researcher interested in ways that we can improve access to healthy food, especially in rural areas. Rural Roots is produced in collaboration between the Leslie Harris Center of Regional Policy and Development at Memorial University of Newfoundland, Canadian Rural Revitalization Foundation, and Rural Policy Learning Commons Partnership, bringing together rural scholars and policymakers in Canada and abroad. The show is supported through a Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada grant. North Star is the song you can hear at the beginning and the end of this show. The song was composed by Laura Bates and performed by Trent Severn. If you listened to Rural Roots on your campus or community radio, 
please let us know if you liked the show. If you listened to the podcast version of the show, feel free to encourage your local radio station to get in touch if they are interested in broadcasting the program. The show is available to community and campus radio stations free of charge through the National Campus and Community Radio Association Program Exchange. Thanks for listening, and I hope you join us next time. To subscribe to the podcast, visit ruralrootspodcasts.com. That's all one word, rural, R-O-U-T-E-S, podcasts.com. I am Boyan Fierst, and you just listen to Rural Roots. Stay in touch. (laughs) 